You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It was October 17th, 2018. Canadians were calling it Sea Day. Okay, nobody was calling it that. But as recreational pot became legal in Canada, a lot of people were celebrating. After all, they were getting rich and about to get richer. Retail, investments, profits, billions of dollars in marijuana sales. Never happened. Today, pot is legal, it's pretty cheap, the people who want to consume it, and nobody much cares. But while a few thousand early birds and stock hypers got rich, thousands of Canadians lost jobs, lost savings, lost opportunities, and livelihoods. Why did it happen this way? Who got what wrong? And how? When large cannabis companies were being valued in the billions, despite having yet to grow a single plant or roll a single joint, what the hell was going on? And the people who did make millions pushing cannabis stocks? What are those people pushing now? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Omar Mualam is an author, a filmmaker, and a freelance journalist based in Edmonton. He chronicled the rise and fall of the cannabis industry for Canadian business. Hey, Omar. Hey, Jordan. I want to start with this because the subhead on your story caught me by surprise. So the subhead on your story asks, how did we get weed so wrong? Who's we in this context? Ah, well, I think that we is probably Canadians in general, whether or not you smoke pot, whether or not you were going to be a recreational cannabis consumer. Um, I think in general, Canadians love the idea that we were going to be uh, as we were told, as promised, world leaders in this in this space. Um, that was sort of the narrative. And it wasn't just perpetuated, you know, within Canada by Canadians and Canadian media. You saw it internationally as well. I mean, The Guardian, New York Times, a lot of them perpetuated this narrative that Canada was on the leading edge, that they were going to be the world leaders of the, the cannabis industry. You know, we were, uh, as the New York Times said, allegedly calling it C-Day right. when cannabis was legalized. I don't know if that really bore out because we are definitely not consuming cannabis to the volume that it is being produced. And as far as the value of the industry goes, um, it really has you know, collapsed from the peak that it was in 2018, early 2019. Take us back, if you could, to 2018, uh, to the few months leading up to legalization. How were cannabis companies valued? Who was buying the stock? You know, give us a sense of, of the optimism that must have been around the industry and, and the money that came with that. So it is hard to know exactly how these companies were valued, because even before the parameters of the industry were known, um, and even when some of them were known, like the fact that there would not be um, a opportunity to export Canadian cannabis internationally, a lot of these companies had $100 million, even billion dollar valuations. I think you know, quite simply, they were valued on their stories and the stories that they told. The bigger the story, the more extravagant it was, 
the more investors that they attracted uh, early on, the kind of you know stock investors that could pump your evaluate your valuation to the hundreds of millions or billions, so that you can go on these big building sprees, and these giant behemoth greenhouses that were built are also, I think, part of the reason that they got these behemoth valuations as well. I think really quite simply, the better and and bigger the story they told, you know, the bigger that company often would become, at least in the short term. What kinds of projections were made about how much pot Canadians would actually consume, whether via oil, edible, smoking, uh, et cetera? Because clearly, like, the projections were nowhere near right. So how did that happen? I think we got it wrong because, well, A, because I think we wanted to believe um, that this could be this overnight industry that uh, would put Canada on, on the world stage. And I think also there was just a lot of uh, boosterism from within the financial echo chambers. You, I mean, you have stock promoters whose job it is to hype up certain stock opportunities. And when there is one that doesn't have a lot of precedent, you know, part of you thinks that this should actually cause um, more hesitation, but it, but often it does the opposite. It causes excitement because um, because there is no precedent, you can't really fact check it. Right. Right. You can't fact check what people sell you on. As as one of the the people I interviewed, Scott Willis, this uh, independent analyst, said, you know, it's easier to sell a dream than it is to sell reality. And I think that's that's what happened there. And, you know, a lot of it also has to do with this assumption that the black market was going to come online. But there was there were so many obstacles in front of people in the black market to, you know, come out of it and come into the legal market Mm -hmm. that uh, in the end, the market just became bifurcated into both legal and illicit. What I really enjoyed about your piece is the human face it presented to the boundless optimism of this industry. Because like I said, I remember that time everybody was getting into the business or buying stock in the business or getting excited to consume uh, what the business produced. And a lot of these people got hosed. Um, So maybe just tell us about Jennifer Daniluk. Who is she? How did she end up in the cannabis industry? Yeah, a lot of people did get hosed. And she is like many people, um, many people that I spoke to, but she is actually the only one who was willing to um, put herself out there and go on the record as, um, you know, as someone who was a casualty of the cannabis hype. So who is Jennifer? Um, you know, she's in a lot of ways, she's just kind of your your middle-aged Albertan woman. She moved here uh, during the oil boom of the mid 2000s from the Maritimes, as as tens of thousands of people did. Um, she worked in the energy sector for quite a while as first as an accountant, then as a controller, really worked herself up there. But then the oil market crashed in around 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, her and her family were in some pretty big financial trouble. And so she was looking to get out of the energy sector. And along comes a job recruiter, a headhunter from the cannabis industry from a company called Radiant. So it's not a new company. Um, It didn't start as a cannabis company. It was founded in Edmonton in 2001 as a pharmaceutical company and as an extract company. Um, 
but things didn't really work out. It ended up being like a boutique producer of, of like cosmetic oils and natural health products, but it did have these two major assets that would later attract um, a, a giant of the cannabis industry. And those assets were, had this, this extraction technology that would allow it, at least in theory, to produce the largest amount and the cheapest amount of THC um, oil extract per day. And it also had this massive, underused, almost 2,000 square uh, meter processing plant. So, you know, this attracts Aurora Cannabis. That's the the behemoth company, which is also in Edmonton that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they'd grown massive with billions of dollars of stock capital and were on this aggressive uh, buying spree. And so it began to talk about a deal with Radiant Technologies, hoping that Radiant could apply its technology to cannabis. And, you know, it, it, uh, it caused some, it caused a lot of excitement for Radiant. Um, the company had a market cap almost, you know, it went from being a penny stock to suddenly having a market cap of almost $100 million, only because it started to uh, enter negotiations with Aurora. Um, Then Aurora put in a $14 million investment and it signed a five-year agreement with Radiant to process cannabis biomass into cannabinoid extract. Um, And, you know, within a month of announcing that deal, Radiant's market cap more than doubled to 228 million. And this is, this is a company that uh, by Jennifer's account had, you know, maybe less than a dozen employees. It was very scientist led so when she is headhunted, I mean, she's basically walking into uh, almost an empty space. I mean, as she recalls it, there were the lead scientists, the CEO, herself, and a receptionist. And they had to basically build this company um, from scratch with, you know, with having never actually produced anything yet. They had no uh, proof of concept. And this is because of their association with Aurora. So how did Aurora become such a giant in the industry? They're one of the giants you mentioned earlier. You also said that it depends on the story you tell. What was their story? How did they do it? Well, you know, they started with a very humble story, actually, as a uh, medical company that, in fact, began as a small grower's personal project to help his friend uh, who had cancer treat his illness. Um, And it grew with some years to be a modest medical company with with the help of some key investors and experienced entrepreneurs. And one of them is this uh, Edmonton man, this former electrician turned entrepreneur named Terry Booth. Um, And Terry's, Terry's a big, big dreamer and he's a big personality as well. And he always had his eye on recreational cannabis, probably, probably from this, from that first medical investment, right. And always had big ambitions for it. You know, as as the road to legalization began, Aurora wasn't growing, I think, as fast or as big as it hoped to, um, at least not compared to Canopy and Tweed, which are, you know, the two top cannabis giants, um, which were blowing up at the time. But then their valuation started to look kind of bloated and stock promoters were looking for a new darling in the Canadian cannabis space. And fortuitously, Aurora had just announced this big, ambitious greenhouse. I mean, big is is an understatement. It was a 70,000 square meter state-of-the-art greenhouse um, that if completed, 
would become the world's biggest marijuana facility. And that's how it stole the investor spotlight. Hmm. And so, you know, a year before legalization, Aurora now had nearly had a nearly $2 billion market cap. And with that capital, it wasted no time breaking ground on Aurora Sky, but then started making plans for other greenhouse operations, some that were even bigger, like Aurora Air, Aurora Polaris, Aurora Sun, and even a Danish expansion called Aurora Nordic. And this, of course, is all while they are aggressively spending on other companies uh, that it would either buy outright or take a major stake in for some influence. Often it seems simply to take some marginally promising technology out of the competitor's hands. And at its peak, Aurora was worth over $4 billion. I want to get you back to Radiant and its association, and and particularly what happened with Jennifer in a second. But first, I mean, I have to ask, can we compare this maybe to other emerging industries? Like, how common is it um, in new industries for this much money to be given to companies who, who haven't even broken ground, who haven't made anything, and who certainly haven't sold a single thing? Like, how unprecedented was this? I don't know if it's unprecedented. I mean, it's pretty unusual, right? Like these companies were making projections before there were even any parameters around how this industry would be regulated and, and how it would work were were even you know announced or known. So a lot of their actual decisions were being made, you know, blindfolded. Right. But I think you know, I think there are plenty of comparisons in tech, um, or if you want to go back to the dot com bubble. But I think maybe a couple of recent examples might be something like Quibi, Hmm. right, which was kind of untested. There was very little evidence to think that people would want Netflix for their bus commute. Yeah. Or Truth Social. There has never been a successful partisan um, social media you know, comparison or compared to to Twitter, right? Because <laughs> we actually need our enemies in order to uh, you know to have an enjoyable time on uh, on social media. Apparently, yeah. Um, I think what's different here is that in theory, cannabis is a type of commodity, um, but it was never treated that way. It was treated as equity, so it attracted a lot of people. I think trying to make a quick buck, and those who could afford to get in super early, they did but they are a small minority and they got out fast. Mm -hmm. A lot of them I understand are now taking an interest in psychedelics. Right. Yes. That's the next one. Yeah. When did it start to become clear? You know, now let's say, you know, we've passed October, 2018 uh, when it became legal, everybody's waiting for the money. When did it start to become clear that a lot of the value in the industry was like simply theoretical and was not going to become a $5 billion business. So right off the bat, it was apparent that the illicit market was going to be a lot harder to outdo than people had given it credit for. And the first quarter of sales, you know, after, uh, after C-Day, October 2018, um, showed abysmal sales in the, in the legal market. Um, and, a lo- you know, just in a lot of a lot of red tape and just struggles to get 
get companies up, to get uh, stores up, to figure out what the, the legal frameworks were going to be. All of that, I think, you know, all of that regulatory stuff, people understood would eventually be, you know, um, ironed out. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons why investors didn't go running after that first abysmal, you know, quarter. You know, they, they were largely forgiven. But then the second earnings report came in around spring 2019 for companies, and that's what sent them running. And it took Canadian pot stocks down with them. That's when you see the country's largest growers like Canopy and Aurora. That's when you see their stock values just plummet. I mean, their shares dropped by a third by the end of the summer of 2019. And that was pretty much across the board, you know, big companies and small companies. Small companies might have even had it worse. So yeah, what happened to those small companies like Radiant? How did it do uh, after its partnership with Aurora and trying to introduce its new technology to a whole new substance, I guess, at the same time as the market is not bearing out the profits? Well, they they didn't have the same cushion that a company like Aurora would have. So, you know, the crash was probably felt more by companies like Radiant you know, Radiant actually had two quarters without revenue. I kid you not, zero dollars. Um, because as legalization day approached, and remember, it had converted all its entire extract processing plant to, to THC extractions. As legalization day approached, it still couldn't get bulk THC extractions to work. Hmm. So, you know, the company only had an R&D license. And it was still trying to get permission to process. This this comes back to all those those legal loopholes, those regulatory loopholes that were in place. You know, before you could even imply, apply for a license, you had to pretty much have it set up to, for production. It wasn't able to get ready in time for C day. Um, and in the meantime, Aurora couldn't wait. So it starts doing its own extractions using some smaller extraction rigs that it has, um, which, you know, the, the quality of it turns out to be pretty good, but more importantly, better than what's coming out from Radiant. Mm. So Radiant, I mentioned earlier, was a very scientist-led team. And as a result of that, they had no experience with THC. And their you know, their promise was just a theory, right? You know, the numbers they crunched about how much it would cost to produce this was only a theory. And so it starts coming out and it's, you know, according to my sources at both Aurora and, and Radiant, it's discolored, it's pungent, and most importantly, it's weak. It's, you know, they're, they're producing THC oil at about three to 6% uh, concentrate. Hmm. Nobody wants that. There is, there's almost no market for microdosing cannabis, right? People microdose other, uh, you know, other drugs, but not cannabis. And so, you know, it's it's looking pretty bad for Radiant from the start, and very quickly its price starts plummeting back to where it began, which was as a penny stock. So, what did um, Aurora do with Radiant after it kind of became clear uh, this wasn't going to pan out? Well, um, according to a class action case against Aurora right now, Aurora tried to make Radiant useful um, by using it possibly to fluff up its financials. So according to the allegations in this suit, 
Aurora sold more than $21 million of dried wholesale cannabis to Radiant, um, a company that it had a lot of ownership and influence over. And then it reported that wholesale to investors as one of the bright spots in its quarterly earnings, in its year-end earnings, um, to try to get the stock price back up. Um, and it did, you know, it did help for a little while, I guess. But, you know, you have to remember, this is pretty weird because Radiant had only made $60,000 in revenue. It was never in the business of producing its own cannabis stock because it's a service provider in theory. The price that it bought it for was somewhat inflated in and of itself. And according to experts, this purchase was made by Radiant at a time when it was in huge financial trouble. Um, it couldn't even pay its overhead bills, like on forklift rentals. Right. <laughs> so this gets, starts to get attention when Radiant sells this cannabis back to Aurora, you know, over the next few months. Um, and as people take note of this, it might be evidence of a round trip sale um, or a boomerang sale, as it's sometimes called, which is when one company sells assets to another uh, that it has influence over to falsely inflate its revenues and then later buys back the assets. And just to be clear, none of this has been proven in court. This is what the class action alleges. And uh, do Radiant and Aurora deny it? That's that's correct. Um, I mean, I did not actually get a response from Radiant. Aurora does deny it. Radiant's not a uh, defendant in the suit. Only Aurora and some of its uh, executives and former executives are. Uh, but that's correct. They do. They do deny any wrongdoing. So in the end, um, what happened to Radiant in particular? What happened to Jennifer? This is a woman who'd uh, already sort of watched one industry bottom out and found herself in the cannabis industry. And now the bottom's fallen out of that one. You know, what's funny is she became a true cannabis believer, almost an evangelist. And she was someone who before her job had never smoked pot before, not even like at a high school party. She, you know, she became a big champion of it. She invested a lot of her um, wages in Radiant stock and put, you know, some of her own money into Aurora stock. Um, she, you know, she even started growing her own plants at her parents' farm hmm. as well and convinced her, convinced her mother to start taking, um, you know, cannabis extracts for her insomnia. So she was like really in it. And so when things started to fall apart, she did what, you know, true believers do, which is, I think they, they try to hold on, um, for as long as they can. And, um, you know, she tried to keep it together through the massive layoffs at Radiant, um, tried to pick up the slack of those lost jobs. She took a, a major wage cut just as she had uh, when she worked in the energy industry a decade, you know, less than a decade prior. And the whole thing, this, you know, this is all happening largely because of an oversupply of cannabis that can't, you know, possibly meet market needs. Right. So this is really like deja vu for her. And as she tries to, tries to keep it together, hold on to her job, help the company survive. Her marriage falls apart and then her health begins to deteriorate. And she was hospitalized in October 2020 uh, due to a bacterial infection that uh, her exhausted immune system couldn't fend off. And that's that was the last straw for her. That was when she finally decided to leave, not just leave Radiant, but leave the industry entirely. 
And, you know, before she had even recovered, she was looking for new work. And so now she is a chief financial officer um, working in the trucking sector. I'm glad she has a happy ending, but how many people were in similar situations? Because I know, again, everybody and their brother was getting scooped up by cannabis companies um, four years ago. How many of them still work in the industry? Uh, Well, (laughs) roughly one third of the cannabis workforce has been wiped out since uh, April 2020. So there's that. Wow. A lot of the retail investors, you know, a lot of them lost a lot of money. Um, I've heard some uh, pretty tragic stories of, um, you know, of farmers who had bought into this dream, converted their, you know, tomato and pepper plants over to cannabis, mm-hmm. and they got burned from that investment. I talked to employees uh, who didn't want to go on the record um, of uh, cannabis companies who also invested as much of their wages into company stocks, you know, up to 10% of their wages, sometimes more, and uh, watch the value of that investment just evaporate. So, you know, I think it's a tragic story for a lot of people. But the people who got in very early on, I think there's been almost no consequences for them, no accountability. Like I said, a lot of them aren't even in the cannabis industry anymore. They've moved on to uh, psychedelics or to crypto. You know, there has been a 80% turnaround in leadership at these cannabis companies in Canada. Um, the CEOs, 80% of them uh, that were there on C Day are no longer there on D Day, whatever we're <laughs> going to call it. Um, and where, where have many of them gone? They've gone to the American cannabis industry. So they based they're they're basically, you know, trying to make their way into a cannabis industry that so far has more promise and is trying to learn a lot of lessons from the mistakes that Canada made in cannabis. Omar, thank you so much for this. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Omar Mualam, writing in Canadian business and doing more than anybody else in this country to codify the term C-Day. The New York Times can thank him later. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Talk to us anytime on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN or via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find this podcast anywhere you get yours in Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, you name it, we're there. Please give us a rating, give us a review, or just tell a friend that you can find this podcast right here. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.